In the world of tech, there's nothing that gets discussed more than reliability. But when we dig into this technical topic, we find the concepts are much more fundamental. On this weekly podcast, we dig into how the concepts of reliability impact every aspect of our lives. Welcome to the Reliability Room. I'm your host, Emily Arnott, Community Manager here at Blameless. I'm joined today by Jake England. Hi, I'm Jake England. I'm a senior site reliability engineer on the infrastructure team here at Blameless. So in our last episode, we dove into Jake's experience working on Magic the Gathering Online. We first looked at how this was kind of an example of really bringing up a socio and the socio-technical system. That This is not a one-person job. And how do you kind of rally an engineering team around a big project like this? We also kind of talked about some of the lessons in reliability by looking at Magic's design itself that magic with some frequency does kind of rules overhauls to try to clean things up, make them more consistent, make them more understandable. And that's how kind of like how they deal with their tech debt of the rules. So as we kind of talked more, we found that there was more and more reliability lessons and greater SRE resilience, socio-technical stuff that really emerges when you think about Magic the Gathering and Magic the Gathering Online. So in this episode, I wanted to dive even further in One thing that I'm really curious about is, as a Magic fan, I've seen thousands of cards released in my time following the game, and with some exceptions, almost all of them are able to be played on Magic the Gathering Online, which is a software simulation of the card game, which I'm sure (laughs) is kind of a nightmare, because those people designing those cards aren't probably coming to consult the MTGO team and going, hey, how easy would it be to make this work? Instead, you guys, I'm sure, are just given a whole bunch of cards and told, make it work. (laughs) So, you know, we always talk about resilience is kind of about adaptivity, you know, being able to roll with the punches, being able to take on something that you couldn't imagine, that you couldn't expect. So I'm just kind of curious uh, what experiences you've had with that and what your kind of perspective is on building a system that can handle (laughs) anything. (laughs) Absolutely. Just to clarify on some things first. So like, you know, when Magic was created, you know, there was who could have thought that this would ever be something that would end up like on an online program thing is maybe when, you know, it was, you know, a bunch of geeks here too. So maybe at some level, you know, this was a glimmer in their eye that it's like someday we can get this <laughs> in something online. Also yeah, in 1993, yeah, you know, it's still a lot of, you know, colleges and universities are how you got online. So, you know, at the beginning, there was absolutely no consultation, something that at least by the time that there was Magic the Gathering as a real product and understanding some of those limitations, um, research and development and the Magic the Gathering online development team actually did start working together very closely because this was such a major concern. And there was a desire from both the leadership and on the R&D, but also on the, you know, from everybody to be able to get these to work together, because of course mm-hmm. we want all our new content to be available on Magic the Gathering online, because not only does that kind of match what our players will expect, you know, especially if we're offering this, but it is also just, you know, more business opportunities that especially like as someone who is sitting has just a mountain of magic cards sitting in my garage that you know magic the gathering is you know online is amazing because i don't have to babysit all those cards Mm -hmm. i mean you know worry about flooding or water damage or anything like that getting all the sleeve protectors and magic the gathering of course offers a way to be able to like if you collect all the cards in a set that at least at the time i'm i haven't checked recently but you know being able to uh have a redemption set you can turn in all of your digital cards and get paper cards instead i remember getting a um redemption 
redemption set for M11, both a set of all the normal cards and foil versions of the cards. And just realizing like, oh, I can see why people would want to collect this now. There is something awesome about being able to get like this whole box of the entire set. This um, is something that really interests me too, is that they, they really try to make the digital objects of the magic card in some way equivalent to the value of the real physical magic card. Um, Absolutely. And this is something that I, I want to get into too, is that a lot of people do spend money to play Magic the Gathering online, but Wizards kind of make, wants to make the price point similar to Paper Magic to play in tournaments or drafts or whatever to collect cards. And that if the game bugs out, if uh, you're playing in tournaments and there's an interaction that doesn't play out the way it's defined in the rules, or if the game crashes, even worse, they'll refund you. <laughs> um, so they have this like very direct and measurable financial incentive to make sure their game doesn't have bugs or rules mismatches. But that's another big subject. <laughs> I want to still talk about this uh, adapting to new cards, but absolutely um, to put it on the back burner. That's another. Yeah, one uh, though I mean, you, you know, when you look at the business model for them too, right? Is that like with Magic: The Gathering, the paper version? It's not like you're paying a subscription. You know, is that their continued revenue comes from providing more things that customers want? Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, there's the fact that you know there are competitive formats that there's several that only use very recent cards. So there is that kind of being able to kind of create their own market because like what we're going to facilitate for these different levels of play are going to have to use these new cards. So you're going to have to use some of them, even though these may be reprints of cards and you can use older versions of them. So there is some areas where they are being able to create their own market, but there's still the matter of providing enough value that people feel like this is worth spending the money on. And when we think about adding new cards to Magic the Gathering Online, that you know, so there's what's new, what haven't we done yet? And it blows my mind what uh, the folks in R&D can come up with, because <laughs> I mean, I couldn't have thought of a lot of the, you know, just think, especially because, you know, you look at the game and you will think of it often as like, this is what it is, where there's this constant step of like, what can it be next? And, you know, in terms of like, when they introduce Planeswalkers as a thing and being able to change the game in that way. And then I think around the same time that I was there was when they introduced the idea of like emblems. That like, this is, you know, something that will exist on the battlefield that is able to provide some effect, but that was a whole new thing as well. But then, you know, you're also bringing up what happened, this uh, interactions with cards. I have broken magic a number of different ways. Um, (laughs) One of my favorites was trying to fix Platinum Angel, because uh, if you're not familiar with Platinum Angel, it's a card that's, it's a uh, cost seven mana, four, four creature. It's an artifact creature. And it says, you can't lose the game and your opponents can't win the game. So a tremendously powerful card, but with a lot of ways to get rid of it is that both between creature removal and artifact removal and four is beefy enough to resist some things, but still not like, you know, the tankiest card in the world. So there's a lot of different ways to be able to get rid of that. And it really puts a target on itself. But so it was a card that saw a lot of different play in a lot of different areas mm-hmm. because Everybody just of its ability. Work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then when you think about what goes into determining a win or lose situation that that can get really sophisticated in the rules. Um, at one point, I think there was like an if statement that was like at least like eight levels nested um, <laughs> for being able to check things here. And so that was something that I had to interact with there. And from my personal play, I usually only played one-on-one. There, it wasn't very often that I played a lot of group play, especially because a lot of group formats can end up in places, uh, in situations where players are eliminated. So they're kind of sitting around not really doing anything. Mm-hmm. And one thing that like hadn't even really crossed my mind at that point uh, is the fact that it's like, what does a win condition look like in a one-on-one mm-hmm. play? You know, if somebody loses or somebody wins, that's it. 
but in when you have yeah, yeah and in multiplayer play cases yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes <laughs> there's always cases in magic if you think okay, there's always exceptions you know, for everything that i'm saying in magic for sure of course <laughs> is that there are exceptions to pretty much every rule but yeah, um, in multiplayer games, you can have one person losing, but then somebody else tries to win, and then one person tries to create a draw condition. There's a lot mm-hmm. that can happen, and they may be on different. You know, they, they may be on teams that may win or lose together, or they may be you know just a whole bunch of different you know individuals. And that the win conditions in a lot of those is that like it's the last player standing. You know, is that mm-hmm. if everybody else loses, the last player wins. But you may also end up in a situation where everybody loses, mm-hmm. um, especially mm-hmm. due to cards like possibly platinum angel. Or, you know, other things that I think there's one where it's you can't, you know, there's some like black magic card that is um, you can't win the game and your yeah. opponents can't lose the game. You know, it's a uh, reversal a, of it. Abyssal Prosecutor or something it, like that? That sounds yeah. familiar. <laughs> yeah. So in my experience, you know, I had rewrote this stuff to be able to interact with that case. And in the process made it so that multiplayer games, this moment somebody lost, everybody else won. So mm. mess up a whole bunch of, you know, tournament stuff there. Um, and you know, <laughs> there is just like, so there is this is challenge of so much extra depth. And so, you know, even with the card where we feel like we have a pretty good understanding of what it's supposed to do, that actually getting that to interact with the rules um, in the way that we expect, especially as there are all, every single one of these cards possibly adding their own complexity means something else that you have to handle. So, I talked before about uh, how the fact that the Oracle text on the card and the fact that, you know, old cards too were rewritten in a way to have Oracle equivalent text, which, you, you know, you can find through Gatherer, um, which I use Gatherer. It, Gatherer is the, you know, online database of just every magic card. And it was a constant reference for me as well, especially because something that was very helpful in that space was that they put the rulings for that card in there mm. as well. Mm-hmm. And that can be tremendously informative because even as a developer, it's like, you know, you're expected to, especially on the rules engine that like my interview, one of the things that ended, I ended up talking about was continuous effects and layers um, because it was something that I knew. And I learned it because my friends had so much trouble with it that I was like, mm. I'll memorize it. And then I'll know that <laughs> Somebody's one thing. Somebody's gotta know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so when I was uh, interviewing um, and I was interviewing with uh, Alexis Jansen, who um, folk magic fans may know as the first first winner um, as the winner of the first great designer search. Alexis has a tremendous background in software engineering. So she, you know, ended up being the like engineering lead for um, Magic the Gathering Online. Yes. And, uh, you know, just the complexity with the rules there. You know, we have the Oracle text for these cards. You know, there's certain patterns to things. And so again, like regular expressions really came up as a, um, and I'm not sure how much the ideation of Oracle texts aligned with people who are already familiar with what regular expressions are, but they do align very well. And so I have to assume that there was some collaboration going mm. on just in terms oh, of like, sure, how do yeah. we make this more <laughs> machine parsable? Aside from the fact that it also helps disambiguate things. Oh, and I just remember her uh, her asking me during my interviews, like, do you have the comprehensive rules open in front of you? Like, it's fine. Like, that's what you're going to be doing <laughs> at work, too. But it was just like, no, I memorized this one. Um, but, you know, is it like you're not expected to know all the rules. And even these people that, you know, that win these competitions, both on the design side and on the competitive play side, which Alexis was able to do both. You know, you're not supposed to know everything. And so being able to have good references and being able to, and so like information sharing was a very valuable part for the org is, you know, being uh, able to have research and development collaborate really tightly with us was really important. And a great card that I can bring up as an example of this did not exist at the time that I was there, but uh, I was excited to see it come out later. And that is Cavern of Souls, which 
When that comes into play, you get to pick a creature type and it generates some mana that you can use on things for that creature type. Well, if you're not familiar with magic, magic has hundreds, if not oh, thousands gosh. of creature types. <laughs> it has so many. Um, Rog, and octopus, kraken, squirrel, <laughs> hound, elves, you know, elves and goblins, of course. It's like, I, I was a goblins, huge elf player. Zombies. <laughs> it goes on and on and on and on. <laughs> Absolutely. And so as a paper player, like that one can seem pretty straightforward. You know, I just pick something and it's good. On Magic Gathering Online, well, it's going to tell you every possible creature type that is available to you. So, you know, there's already the fact that it's like, you're going to have the full list available and you probably know what it is that you're wanting, but still everything's out there. But also, you know, you know, we're talking about mana generation and mana is the blood of Magic the Gathering. Is that, you know, this is a thing that enables everything else to work, basically. You know, <laughs> so, so, like playing lands and drawing cards, pretty much everything else has got a mana cost associated with it. That mana was so highly integrated in so many different parts of our system and the way that it was designed was actually had some assumptions at first. And that mm. was a huge challenge that when it came time to do something different with mana, it ended up mm. being this ex- just incredible engineering effort um, that like Ice Age cards, when those came around, and then we had the idea of mana that came from snow permanence mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that required touching just about every piece of code that we had there. But the yeah, thing that was... Uh, yeah. To specify if there's people unfamiliar, usually magic just has five colors of mana. And then things will have a cost that either says, give me this specific color or just give me one of any. But then as Jake is talking about, you started getting cards that specified further. Oh, you can only use this mana to cast like an elf. Oh, this is snow mana because it came from a snow island. And some cards say, oh, if you use snow mana to pay for this, something else happens. And uh, as you're saying, it's... Uh, <laughs> Every single one of those compliments uh, complicates some things. And so to add, you know, really add to it, it's, I think it was from the Lorewind block, there was a, call called smoke, a card called Smokebraider. And that it's just, uh, you tap and you get two mana of any color that can be used for elemental creatures. Well, this being around at the same time as Ice Age, there was, or, you know, a, being supported by the same system, that there's like a card in Ice Age that allows you to turn a card into a snow permanent. And so now you could have this snowy smoke braider that's going to generate snowy elemental mana. And so you have this additional case. And what we and I, I like at one point in Magic Gathering's history or Mikko's history, there was only like there was just almost like a hard coded kind of like here's the colors of mana. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, whatever mana you have will go into one of these pools. And then we started realizing that there were more and more pools that we needed to be able to express. And I mean, eventually it had to just get to the point where it was going to require basically an entire rewrite. And so I, you know, have to commend the Magic Gathering team <laughs> because being able to support Cavern of Souls is no small feat, um, mm-hmm. especially given just the situation that it was in. Like, is that if you had kind of had to hard code things, is you might have normal mana, snow mana, elemental mana, and snow elemental mana. And so then if we were to add some other dimension to it as well, is that then that could go from four pools to eight. And then so like having a card like Cavern of Souls, that then you could also make that card snowy. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and then you're just adding, add- you know, 300 <clears throat> pools in and of itself for every Precisely. Uh, and so- of scaling up. It, it really um, speaks to like a, an adaptive challenge, right? Like maybe the first five you do, you adapt it linearly, and then you think, okay, we're staying ahead of it. And then they change something, they add something, and oh, the next adaptation we have to make is like orders of magnitude higher. <laughs> and so it really does come back down to that question of like, what's good enough? And you know, is it like 
you know, if it, with all the foresight to be able to design it perfectly the first time, could have possibly saved some effort there. But appreciating that, you know, one of the things, especially about SRE, and especially as we talk about incident response, and when we talk about blamelessness, uh, especially when it comes to the retrospective process, is, you know, appreciating the fact that you're working with incomplete information at the time. Mm, and yes. so when you're designing a system, the same thing is true, is you don't know what kind of things are going to change in the future or what you might need. And as much as you may try to guess, you could guess wrong. And mm. so understanding how much that you need to design for now and the near future, and appreciating the fact that you may just need to be able to do a major redesign four years down the line, 10 years down the line, whatever's appropriate for the scale and scope of your business um, or you know, whatever organization it is that you have, that I hear this line, it's like premature optimization is the root of all evil. And so I don't know about mm. the root of all evil, but there is you know, this question about good enough. And, but also you know, a constant uh, conversation happening in the SRE spaces is that like, should you design a system that's going to be able to scale like a hundred times mm. over? And that a lot of the consensus is actually no, like being able to hit 10x, being able to have something that's going to work well for now and for being able to grow like 10 exercise, great. But designing for beyond that, they often have very different requirements and different ways of working and things that may work well at very massive scale could actually be highly inefficient or even counterproductive at smaller scale. But again, when you're working with like limited engineering resources too, sometimes you just have to make the decisions like this is what we're going to stick with for now. And we're going to have this piece of debt that we're going to pay off later, mm -hmm. um, much like what we had here. But so this tight uh, collaboration with um, the development team on Magic the Gathering Online and the research and development team designing the actual Magic the Gathering game, I think it was Eric Lauer, um, who is, uh, you know, one of the uh, developers. So there's the designers and developers. The designers are, you know, coming up with a lot of great ideas. The developers are the people who get this stuff balanced and to really work with the rest of the rule system. And Eric was mind-blowing in this space. The entire team, everybody there really was, but I got to work, you know, interact with Eric and just like his insights on this are, left, I'm, uh, are you know, just amazing. I'm, I'm reminded of the case where uh, somebody was playing a game and going like, man, how many swamps do I have to put in my deck to have a land drop on turn two? And I think Eric just shouted over 54, you know, 54 <laughs> cards out of 60. Like if you want to guarantee something, that's the investment that you have to make. And so I think that's something that like spoke a lot to me on the reliability side as well. Because, you know, the reliability of your combo, you know, is that you get the mm. ability, like you draw your cards and you might mulligan, but what's good enough for your system to work most of the time, for your deck to work mm. most of the time, versus being able, like, it doesn't have to be perfect. Just, it made me laugh there, but I, I think it was Eric that had this card, and so uh, the Cavern of Souls card. So for a long time, I think we just called it Eric's Mitko Killer, because it was just <laughs> a card that was like, if we ever get this in a set we're going to have a fire drill, I think. <laughs> but, you know, coming back to the point of, like, adding cards to the game, it was a fun process uh, for us, especially because since the game had been designed by that point, that it wasn't like we were trying to individually implement cards, like figure out what this card does and write the code for it so much, as it was that, like, there's Oracle text for this card that then we can parse and turn into some sort of expressive language that then mm. can be used by our software. And like at some level, I think it, you know, it's, it could really just be, you know, like a dictionary, right? Is it like, here's yeah. a key, here's a value for all, what these different attributes are. And it's adaptive um, that any card that just uses those same words won't require any special attention. Exactly. It's that like, <laughs> you might have like, whenever a goblin comes into play, whenever an elf comes into play and being able to abstract that down to whenever creature 
goblin slash elf, you know, whatever's appropriate there and being able to break it down to where it can fit a lot of these same patterns was really not only valuable just for both for development and for consistency. But so it was fun whenever we would get a new set because we would get like this spread, uh, you know, or we would, you know, we get the dump of the information for the cards, which is in a very standardized format. Um, but then we would create a spreadsheet, which was tracking which cards perfectly parse already. Um, mm. Because we have these regular expressions. And if there was any part of the Oracle text that wouldn't translate to something that we, you know, some of our machine markup that we, you know, it would output and say, hey, there's something you need to work on here. So we ended up with this tracking spreadsheet that just made it us, okay, we need to add support for something on this card. We need to add support for something on this card. And, you know, sometimes it was something like there's a new keyword. And so you only need to implement the new keyword. And then suddenly all of those cards mm. that were, that's the only new thing on it start working. And so, you know, realizing how valuable that was as a design principle of just being able to, it didn't have to be perfectly abstracted. And there were a lot of things that were still very similar, which maybe didn't get parsed exactly the same. Um, it may not have actually, and, and that might be because either the rules weren't exactly the same or they were very mm -hmm. close, but just because of something else, we put in, you know, a slightly different case here. And then we say, if it's this or this, we'll do the same thing. And that can be because sometimes it might be that particular parts of the rules will align for particular parts, but then they'll diverge in other areas. But so, you know, we'd have the spreadsheet that we would go through and just kind of figure out what it is that we needed to work through. And of course, there was the consideration that some cards were required much more work than others. Is that some, like you know, just souls or <laughs> exactly. It's <laughs> like, well, this is the only yeah. card. Yeah, this is the only card with that particular format or whatever it is. And so we only have to add this once for this, you know, is it like, <laughs> it can feel like a disproportionate amount of effort for it. But for mm. the complete, you know, the completeness of the set, it was something that really uh, required that effort. Um, that's, uh, that really kind of drills into what we were talking about before. Like, okay, let's say you get one of these entirely novel cards, uh, something like Platinum Angel. And then you're doing all this work to implement, okay, we need to be really robust about checking when someone wins, when someone loses, all the cases in which that can happen, what do we do instead, blah, blah, blah. How abstracted do you make something very specific like that, such that if, you know, a couple sets later, I don't know how much later it was, um, mm -hmm. but uh, the, this other one, the Abyssal Persecutor, the demon that says you can't win <laughs> until you get rid of this card. Like, is the goal to be able to handle that automatically? Or do you say, this is such a rare thing, it's better to kind of just work on this ad hoc, and if it comes up again, we can do it ad hoc again? <laughs> For what a lot of the principles that we ended up following were, is, is it was, don't try to overgeneralize it. Is that there's something mm -hmm. where you like can already see or you know that there's something coming down the pipeline where there's going to be a similar pattern, that maybe you do something there. But it was often a case where we could say, hey, we will implement just this as it is. And if we need to generalize it later, that we can, um, or at least, you know, making some consideration that in our design, we might want to try to generalize this later. And so that might dictate a couple decisions, but that we're not like putting out the full effort there. Um, yeah. either because yeah. You can't get paralyzed by this, right? And I know yes. you guys are always on a pretty tight schedule too, to have the digital set ready within some window of the physical set coming out. Yeah. And this that That's was something else Yeah, yeah uh, that was very much a, uh, you know, a consideration there is the fact is that like there was this very strict schedule. It wasn't like we can say, oh, you know, there was a technical problem with this feature launch. We're going to need an extra month or something like that. That at Magic the Cat, you know, at Wizards, it was like, this is when it needs to come out. So yeah, it's like coming out done. of the printers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's got to be online. <laughs> and so you know, it was always, uh, you know, a challenge uh, there to be, you know, a, a, this trade-off between you know, being able to make our lives easier in the future, but also just accepting, you know, some amount of technical debt because that's what the timeline dictated. Yeah. Hmm. 
I think that's a pretty profound lesson because uh, I think it's tempting to kind of start thinking in absolutes about stuff like technical debt and generalization and forward thinking programming that, oh yeah, it's always better to be more abstract, more generalized, more robust, but you have to be practical about it too. You have to think about what's good enough, what will get us through what we need to do right now. Absolutely. Um, and so mm -hmm. tracking user sentiment was a very important part of that too. You know, as long as a lot of the customers were happy, you know, the people that were playing the game were happy with things is that, that, I mean, that was an important part of feedback. And so I, that's why it always blows my mind if there are places that aren't getting that feedback from their users, because mm -hmm. like that was, you know, that's a guiding star for so many development principles in making that trade-off and understanding what's going to be acceptable to your users. So I have uh, one final question here that kind yes. of relates to this idea of thinking about user satisfaction and SRE. We're always thinking, okay, ultimately it comes down to the user. These ideas of good enough are based on the user. But with MTGO, I think we get a really clear example of sometimes the user isn't right. <laughs> and uh, I referred earlier to situations where commonplace understanding of the rules might not actually match up with the official rules. But another one that I thought of when you were talking about your how many swamps do I need to draw to is that people don't really understand statistics. <laughs> and I've seen a lot of people play Magic the Gathering Online or other digital card games and they go, it must be broken because I haven't drawn a land in like six turns. Mm -hmm. And they get frustrated and they get upset. But what can you do? That's just actually how randomness works. <laughs> is that sometimes you go dry. Sometimes you get all lands. Uh, it's just variants. But I was kind of wondering, like, <laughs> internally, I'm sure you actually got some feedback saying, oh, uh, scrying is broken. I scryed a card to the bottom, and then I drew another one of that card. It must be broken. There's no way that could have happened otherwise. <laughs> um, and it's like, how do you deal with a bug report that's like that when the real answer is that's just statistics. <laughs> and yeah, and, I mean, even through my degree program in statistics, as you know, I can come out of that and still have my brain, you know, the gambler's fallacy, right? Oh, is it yeah. like you're rolling a die and it's you like, I haven't gotten a six. <laughs> I must, a six must be coming up soon. It's like I'm reminded of it um, in Dungeons and Dragons is that like sometimes you need to roll a D3 and mm -hmm. I could roll the D6 and divide by two, but I will roll that D4 and re-roll on a four and just know that I've, you know, condemned some mirror universe Jake to just... <laughs> a day of rolling that and just getting nothing but fours kind of thing because that's the way that this that statistics works and so mm -hmm. it is amazing how often that that can conflict with human intuition but when it does come down to uh, bug reports too there is you know this uh, uh, a lot of it comes down to and actually i'm excited maybe we could talk about this in the next session um mm -hmm. is talking about like how do you test something like this how do you because it's not just, you know, you're developing it and I might be able to test some things, but how do you gain confidence that things are working well enough? Like, what mm. does that look like? And that was something that, you know, Wizards devoted a ton of resources to answering that question as best they could, because it was such an important one to get right for mm. uh, for users. Yeah. But, you know, just really being able to kind of accept that sometimes users are wrong. And so, you know, you check things on your end <laughs> and go like, no, I think this is working the way that we want. And this is something I remember talking to Kurt about, too, is that like when we think of, oh, the system is healthy or, oh, the user has encountered a bug, we have to really always be framing of it in terms of, okay, well, what did we actually promise to the users? What did we yes. say it would do? <laughs> because it could just be something where their expectations and what we're actually providing become really mismatched. I think this has been very valuable. We've learned a lot about, uh, I think, really kind of like scrappy 
practical programming from this example. I think there's tons of more lessons we can learn from Magic the Gathering. Uh, I'd be really happy to talk about this more in the future, too. Absolutely. It's something that I really loved, yes. <laughs> me too, me too. And I hope uh, the audience enjoyed learning a little slice of the inside story of Magic the Gathering as well. Uh, yes, thank you for joining us. us. In uh, future episodes. Yeah, thank you so much. Have a lovely day. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed your time in the reliability room. Everywhere we look, we see the challenges and value of good reliability. But no matter how you prepare, things will go wrong. Orchestrating your team around incident response is key to making a product users can trust. Automate a seamless incident management process with Blameless, the incident response workflow that keeps your communication and response running smoothly, even when things go wrong. Visit blameless.com trial to start your free trial today. That's blameless.com slash trial.